Argas. He still have spokesman review notepads. <laughs> okay. Oh, so welcome everyone. Um, what a party, Mr. We needed extra chairs. That was wonderful. So um, my name is Becky Nappy, and um, I am um, a Kevin Cod family neighbor from way back. So uh, the Cods and the Nappies grew up next door to each other. And there were 11 of them and six of us, and we almost all had a cod our own age. And we know there are some cods in the audience tonight, so would you uh, wave or stand up? Cod, cod kids. <laughs> so um, before we get started, um, I am going to lay out some uh, ground rules, of course. Um, first of all, if you have cell phones on, would you please either silence them or um, mute them or even turn them off, Sister Lucia? <laughs> there are some nappy kids in the audience, too. Um, here's what's going to happen in our next about hour together. So, um, Father Kevin is going to read from his book quite a bit and talk about it. Um, I'm only going to ask a few questions to um, get it going and also keep it going. He doesn't have any trouble keeping things going. <laughs> um, afterwards, we'll probably take about an hour. We're going to have a very, very short question and answer period because by the time that comes around, mostly we want to hear from Father Kevin, yes? Yeah. So very short question and answer, and I apologize in advance if I cut you off. We're not cut you off, but I'll say that's it. And but Father Kevin will stay after um, for signing books and answering questions. And there's going to be tons more food and more music. Yes, from our great. Let's give our uh, musicians. The other logistics piece is you're not trapped in the room. If you need a restroom at any time or need more food, um, just feel free. We won't take it personally, will we? No. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I think that was the logistics. Did I put um, anything on logistics? So um, just a couple more. So Pat Garvin is over there with the books. If There's still, I think, a lot of books if anybody wants to buy one. Um, please don't lend books to friends because I lose money when you do that. Um, um, but <laughs> secondly, also, uh, Kathy DeRozier is here from the American Pilgrims Group, uh, our local chapter. Uh, we're kind of the founding members, and she has a little bit of information. If some of you have been pilgrims or intending to go, they have tons of help and information available. And um, we also have, if some of you brought your little credentials, we got a stamp for those. And so Kathy will be over there near the sofa uh, at the break or afterwards. Again, there's lots of food, so please, please, please eat up, eat up, eat up. All right. Okay. You ready? Uh, yeah. Ready. Okay. So, Father Kevin, can you begin by giving us a time frame for the two walks? What years they happened? How old were you? Um, <laughs> how long did it take each time and I know the details are in both books but um, just for a refresher and um, lastly on that one why you decided to write the two books do you have your own mic? no this oh, is a record is oh. it's recording 
Okay. There you go. Thank you. So I, I knew you were going to ask that, Becky. Um, so uh, I was uh, working in Belgium at the time uh, in the early 2000s, uh, working in our American seminary there. And uh, I would come home as much as I could whenever I had a break uh, or vacation because my mom was getting elderly. Well, she was already elderly. She was getting even more elderly, and of course, wanted to have time with her. And then um, she died in 2002, fall. Um, and after that, I was like, okay, mom's gone, and um, I'm in Europe, and why should I go home? <laughs> Except for my brothers and sisters, but... Um, but I thought, well, here's my chance to do something kind of big while I'm over here. And um, I've never been a big sort of tour person or getting on a bus with a bunch of other people and, you know, getting off a bus and seeing a church and getting back on the bus. That stuff didn't attract me very much. So somewhere along the line, I'd heard about this pilgrimage thing, the Compostela thing. I don't know where exactly. So that's, I started about January of uh, 2003. I started telling people I was going to walk it, which was a mistake because then people said, you're really going to do it? And I said, well, now that I've said it, I've got to do it. Um, and I didn't know, didn't know anything about it, really. And this was long before there were movies, and there were very few books about it, in, in English anyway. And um, it was hard to find anything out about it. Uh, in the English-speaking kind of world, it was still pretty, pretty unknown, um, uh, especially in the American world. Um, so I just said, well, I better go do it. So I got on a bus. So in, in July of 2003, um, I got on a bus. Train down to uh, to Paris and then down to Bordeaux and then up to the little village called Saint Jean Pied de Port, which is uh, the kind of the starting point for a lot of people. It's right right on the, the French Spanish uh, frontier up in Basque country. And I started walking and I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, that story, of course, is told in the book To the Field of Stars. Um, so that was 2003. Uh, after I finished, I came back and was kind of very touched by the whole experience, as most pilgrims are. And then um, I had been keeping a journal while I walked, and I didn't want to look at that for quite a while. So I think like maybe December or so, I kind of opened up the journal finally after some dust had settled. And um, I, uh, I said, well, you know, I think I should write this up before I start forgetting this stuff. So I started writing um, and uh, went through... I didn't think it was going to be a book at first. I thought it was just sort of, you know, writing down the what was in my terrible hands, handwriting. Um, but then it started to kind of take shape. So the book finally got published in 2008. So that was five-year wait between the actual walking and the book coming out. Um, while I was doing that walk, I met a few pilgrims who had walked long distances, not just the, the Spanish segment of it, but had walked from their homes in Germany or in Netherlands or in France or Belgium. And they were pretty impressive because I was moaning and groaning about walking my 500 miles when they'd been walking 1,500 miles or more. Um, and so I thought, well, that, when I finish my job here in Belgium, that's what I'm going to do. So the second time I walked was as I finished up in Belgium, walked out the front door of our place in Leuven, or Louvain, and started walking south through, uh, through uh, Belgium and then into France. And that took a lot of time, because I kept breaking down. <laughs> um, and anyway, I ended uh, that walk in a little village called Saint-Ferme near Bordeaux uh, when I got plantar fasciitis, and that kind of stopped me cold finally. Um, that was 2007, and that was from, October, from July to October. 
Um, so I was at 54 at that time, 50 for the first walk. Um, the third time I walked was in 2012. I had that gap between where I had stopped in near Bordeaux and where I had started the first one. It was kind of eating at me, so I said, well, um, I'm going to go back and do that. So in 2012, I went back the summer of 2012, took a little more time off and walked that last stretch uh, to complete the whole thing. Um, and I was 59 years old when I did that. Um, I did take, keep a journal while I was walking, um, but I never turned it into a book because I'm tired of writing books about this. <laughs> I did have one more Camino experience two years ago. I, I went back to Spain and was a hospitalero. That means one of the people who takes care of pilgrims in a, in a parish uh, refuge in the little village of Granon for 10 days. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience as well. Anyway, that's the great. timeline. That I, I spent too much time giving no, the timeline. No, you're doing great. Okay. I would like, though, a two-sentence explanation of what the Camino and the Way is. For I'm sure everyone in the audience knows, but just in case. So just in case, um, in about the seven or eight hundreds, um, this whole thing started. Um, it was uh, It was about contemporary with when Spain was, the Catholics in Spain were beginning to kind of push back against the, the, the Moors in Spain, and um, they needed a hero, and the hero they chose was the traditional patron saint of, of Iberia, Spain, St. James. And it was just about that time that they discovered, uh, through 7th century means, his burial place in the town of Compostela. Um, they saw stars, and, and they said, they smelled it, and they said, this is James. That's, it had the smell of sanctity. So, um, so anyway, um, uh, so from that time on, it became a pilgrimage place uh, for Europeans. Um, they, uh, if they didn't have enough time or money to go to Jerusalem or to Rome, they went to Compostela. So it became one of the major, major pilgrimage routes through through all of Europe. There were kind of this whole network of kind of rivers of pilgrims heading that direction. And it lasted until, it lasted, it was a big deal until about the Protestant Reformation. And then Europe became too dangerous uh, to kind of walk through because they were fighting with one another. And it dried up and had some little resurgences. And then it picked, started picking up again in the 1960s. People started rediscovering the route and redoing it, wanting that experience in their lives. And now, when I walked the first time, there were about 70,000 pilgrims finishing in a year. Now it's like three, four hundred thousand a year or walking it. About that, I think, Kathy. So it's become huge. Um, and I think my book helped. <laughs> it did. Thank you. Um, so, Father Kevin, I really appreciated in both books how honest and open you were about your the elemental nature of the walk. Your blisters in the first book, um, just the... The, having this in the second book where put on wet clothes, especially underwear, <laughs> when um, the, the rain never stopped. Also, the almost food um, insecurity, the second one, where you never knew if a village was going to be open. Also, in the first book, you talk about sleeping in the hostels um, communally. In the second one, you would have more private rooms. But um, people like throwing up, and sorry. And I just love that you got into the physical hardship 
of the of the journey as well. You didn't spare those details, and I really appreciated that. So, can you explain why um, these details were included and why they're such an important part of doing the work? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, well, how can you talk about it without... I mean, it's a physical thing. So it's a, I think that's part of the extraordinary experience is that it's one of those experiences in life where body and mind and spirit are all wrapped up together and it's very intimate. It's, it's, it, there's, there's no separation. It's all there together. So you can't talk about the spiritual part of it without talking about the physical part of it or the physical without the spiritual or the mental as one pilgrim said, this is a mental game, not a physical one. This is a, this is a keeping your, your brain in the right place, for the focus in the right place to get down the road. Physically, you know, that's, it's so, but it's, it's all three of those things kind of wrapped together. So putting in the, you know, describing the reality of, of um, how, you, how you puncture and sew up a blister um, or somebody doing that for you becomes a really normal, I mean, so... A blister, all of a sudden, when you hurt, all you can think about is yourself. You know, oh, my foot, it hurts. I hurt. I want to stop. It all becomes about me. And then some person comes by and says, take off your boot. Then they take off your boot, and then they start massaging your foot. And then they, they take care, and they put something on your blister for you, and, they, they give you, and then they give you a hug and go down the road. And you say, well... Now I'm not thinking about myself anymore because this kind, generous, loving person um, took care of me. And um, so the physical part is essential to it. You've got to have the snoring. Otherwise, it's, it's not a true book. Yeah, the snoring and the whatever else that goes on and the, and the blisters and the tendonitis and, um, and just, you know, just dealing with... And it's only later that you realize that those things... Are the are what make the story move along? Really, that that's um, you know you're not just whining. It's also a template for your whole life. You know, the blister on your foot is a is a symbol or a, a of you know the blisters in our lives. You know, or in our marriages or in our whatevers. You know, um, that have to be carried. Whenever we find ourselves going, poor me, poor me, poor me. I go back to the Camino and say, well, I'm not so poor after all. You know, some, there's people to take care of me. So that's part of it. Did, and you we want me to... a passage about that. Oh, that captures you, that point. Do you want me to hold that? I can it? put it here, maybe. Let's see here. So this is the from the chapter called Don't Quit. <laughs> Believe me. (laughs) Okay. As I feared, it's six in the morning. The laundry hanging about the room is still plenty damp. It is the first thing I check, even before heading to the loo. The hard reality of clammy underwear discourages me beyond reason and drops me back into the hole I felt yesterday when Evert and Sitsa moved on. I have no friends at hand to pull me out of this psychic dump. So I go about my morning affairs with no sense that there is some great purpose in all this. I almost wish I had a good reason to quit, but I have none. My feet and knees and tendons are all just fine. Not even a blister gives me cause for catching a train home. Again last night I awoke midstream and could not get back to sleep for quite some time. 
There has been a restlessness afoot within me these past days, something I have not been able to see clearly or name. Perhaps the wet socks and underwear are the humble revelators of my present dis-ease. Zeal, zeal for this mission, is leaking out of me. Another part of me, probably the greater part of me, does not want to quit and understands that what I am presently about is something monumental in my life. Jesus, James, Gregory, click and clack, don't even let me want to quit. I repack Gregory, the damp clothing either tucked inside pockets where it won't get anything else wet, or dangling to dry from Gregory's outer skin held in place by safety pins. The wool socks and blue microfiber underpants dangling from Gregory look like medals hanging from the chest of some insane general. (laughs) They will wag nicely as I walk, I am sure. I eat a peach, some nuts, and a third of the altogether uninteresting ham and Emmental cheese sandwich I bought last night. I step outside, lock the door, and leave the key in the mailbox as directed. At seven, I am aware of how dark it still is out here on the street. There is just a hint of morning light on the eastern horizon. Summer is really over. Time is moving on. The earth is tilting its northern pole ever so slowly away from our lovely yellow sun. Up the steep back, up the steep hill back into the park I climb. Then through the center of town, stopping in the church for just a moment. Then I'm on my way for the day. The sun warms me as it rises higher in the sky, and as it does, I begin the process of healing the morning's doldrums. Yes, the fields are more brown than before, but look at them more closely. And what do I see? Amidst the clods of red dirt formed into long, rough furrows are small blades of next year's wheat already showing themselves. The delicate chlorophyll-laden blades are all the more beautiful for their present fragility. What a wonder that they should grow so. It cannot be easy for a seed so small to make it in this tough world, to avoid the hungry birds above, to be buried for so long, to wait for rain, to sink the most tender of roots into the roughest of soils, to dare pop their little green heads above the surface. None of this can be easy. But then to finally see the light, to stretch upward under the warm September afternoon sun, to become big and tall and strong, and then eventually to produce more seed, seed as remarkable as itself, and to do it all so profligately. In their hundreds and thousands, they produce the next generation, and all this so that I might eat a delightful baguette tonight. Indeed, what a wonder among a world full of wonders. Even the barren field has its delights. Even this long road on its more dismal days is filled with revelation. God of tender wheat, don't let me even want to quit. There, that's a- Very good. Well, just as the elemental details I loved, I um, also was so struck with the beauty of your descriptions of liminal experiences, which you're going to define better for us, but when you're traveling that thin space between our 
world here that's so tactile and we know, and then that spiritual world that's a little more mysterious. So would you talk a little bit about that, those experiences, and pick out a passage that really describes that beautifully? Um, we're getting personal here. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Well, liminal is a, a fancy word for those sort of um, that that edge right between the this world and the next world, or this world and heaven, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the, this the physical world, the spiritual world. It's that 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 threshold, I suppose you'd say. And um, you know, when we live in this world, we kind of live down here, and we get caught up in our daily lives, and and that's certainly true on the as you're as a, for a pilgrim, you've got all kinds of physical things to take care of. You know, you've got your body, of course, and you've got to have a decent, reasonable nutrition on it. Even when there's all you, you know, you've been eating tuna fish and baguettes for like three days. It's like, ugh, you know. Um, and you're, but you, you, you also, you're just, you know, you're take, paying attention to maps. You're watching, trying to make sure you don't take the wrong turn. You spend a lot of your day just watching your feet go by, you know, and the, the pavement or the dirt or the path go by under your feet. You're not thinking of very much because it's it's like... It's just too much time to do all this thinking and all of this, you know, so a lot of times you're just sort of blank. You're just sort of wandering out there. People would ask, what do you think about all day? It's like, I don't know. You know, not really very much, actually. You know, if I had to go back and think about what I was thinking all day, I don't, I, most of it is just sort of like, I'm just here walking, you know, uh, next one foot ahead of the other, trying to avoid, you know, this trap or that mistake or that wrong turn or something. And, um, you know, you, you really do pay a lot of attention to not taking wrong turns because a wrong turn can really ruin your day. It's kind of like a shipwreck at sea for a captain, you know, <laughs> as Kevin knows. <laughs> and um, so, you, um, so, you know, if you're, if, you're expecting, if you're expecting, you know, God to sort of break through and send you a bolt of lightning, um, that may happen along the way, but it... It may not, and you never know um, what's around the next corner. Uh, just like you never know, just when you're most in the dumps, when you're having your worst day and most alone, that's when you come across a, somebody that becomes, you know, your best friend for the rest of your life, um, or something like that. So you never know what's right ahead, and you never know. And, you, and if you expect, if you plan that I'm going to have a God moment here. Uh, today and I want it at three o'clock. God, um, that's not how it works. Most of it's just like trotting along. And in fact, I was kind of getting worried as this was going on and on and on as I was walking. Especially the long walk is is harder. Um, it's a harder mental game, and, and uh, because it's you're out there by yourself so much. That um, you know, I was sort of you know been at this for like two months. And I just, I feel like I've just been walking. You know, it's just been an exercise and exercise, occasionally meeting people, eating some pretty nice food, meeting some, you know, but it's, it didn't feel very holy, I guess you'd say, most of it. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, when you kind of least expect it, something pops and you say, oh, okay, I'm going to set this here. So this is a little bit later in the book, except way later in the book. Another night, another morning, I take one rainy day to walk to La Coquille, then another to Tivier. 
Along the path to TVA, my guidebook informs me in the briefest terms that I should keep an eye open for an ancient rock of prayer. I have no idea what exactly this site might be, but I do keep my eye peeled for it, and sure enough, a rough sign or two indicate that I am approaching something ancient and important. There it is, in a field just on the other side of several strings of barbed wire. It is a humble enough stone, about the size of a dinner table, and even has something of the shape of a table, or an altar. There is no informative sign indicating its age or use. I am not that far from the prehistoric paintings of the Lascaux Cavern, so I suppose it may be a relic from pre-Christian times. I don't really know and have no way of finding out, at least not out here, not today. Well, blessings on whomever once prayed here, blessings on those who at least knew they were not their own creators and masters of their own destiny, who sensed in some way something bigger and better than themselves in this life. Sometime later, I've left the dirt paths and am ambling down a small paved road, chestnut forests to either side. The leafy branches reaching up and over the roadway forming a green and brown canopy above me. I'm feeling good. Nothing hurts. My feet are a little wet inside my boots from the October damp, but not bad. I'm thinking of nothing. I'm just walking. My mind is a happy blank. It is dark along this road, dark like a church. The light of day filters green through the chestnut canopy above. All is soft. Then, in a blaze that lasts only a moment, I walk into God. I walk right smack dab into God. God envelops me. He wraps himself around me. These trees, this damp, this dark, this road, these feet, these legs, this earth, this universe... We are all in him and of him and enveloped by him. Oh my God, I just walked right smack dab into you. I cannot hold on to the sense for much more than a second or two. But the residue of its revelation endures as I continue through my chestnut forest. For a moment I have no doubts. God is so true and so good and this reality, this goodness, this love is so real. No doubt no darkness, no evil, no war, no fracture of the human race in any of its many fractures can diminish the power of the holy and one and altogether infinite kiss I have just been given. This is what I've been walking for and waiting for all these pilgrim miles. I am electrified by the light of it. That's it. That took about a year to write that paragraph. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> um, so this was the question when we were kind of rehearsed that you went, oh, but <clears throat> you're going to do great. How did the um, experience, both experience then on the third, change you uh, as a priest, as a human being, as uh, not that they're separate, um, as a brother, as a pastor? Just as Kevin Ambrose Codd, how did how has it changed you? Um, <laughs> you had a good answer. What did I say the other day? <laughs> um, you know, that's really a hard thing because it's hard to evaluate your own life and, and see it as you know. It's, I suppose in some ways um, it would be easy to sort of say 
um, you know, this was sort of a big marker in my life. There was sort of the pre-Kevin and a post-pilgrimage Kevin. Um, I think for me personally, um, both experiences were really different. Uh, the, the walking through Spain uh, and the walking through France, which was much longer and more difficult in some ways. Um, but I think what a couple things. One, it made me appreciate the earth we live on far more than I ever did before. You live in a city, in, in, whether it's an American city or a Belgian city, and it's pavement and cobblestone and um, grass, of course, that we plant and fertilize. And But when you're out there um, day after day after day a day, especially if you're on the earth itself, uh, you realize how soft and tender and beautiful it is. Uh, in a new way, you become much more in love with this beautiful gift of the planet that we have, that we live on. Um, so that awareness certainly uh, was much more deeply experienced out there and has continued. I, um, you also, I think, on the other side, looking up into the night sky, especially, and you, if you once you, you know those rare places now where you can actually see the stars in their fullness. That's, um, to me, how big and grand the universe is. Um, just still takes my breath away when I think about it. And, and, you know, we always look at the stars, especially when you're kids. You know, look at, you try to find the North Star and stuff. But, but to actually see the full panoply up there in its, in its fullness, this blanket of light above us at night, that um, how big the universe is, you know, and how each one of those is a star and each one of those has a galaxy and... It's, it's, it's looking into infinity in a way, or at least to the edge of infinity. Um, so that's those, those two sides of it. Personally, um, I hope it made me be a little bit more reflective about my own whining, you know, or my, my self-pity or my, uh, gosh, you know, I'm suffering a lot here. It, it, when I go back and think, okay, you know, shut up. <laughs> you know, it's not so bad. And... Um, and even more, keeping an eye open for both receiving the kindness of strangers and being a stranger who offers kindness along the way. Um, that's really been, uh, I, th- I hope I'm better at that than I was. Um, as a pastor, for sure, I think um, I really experienced this at the, the, the chapel, the, the parish center the, at WSU, at our, 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 what we call a Newman Center, our chapel for uh, the students there. For five years I was there, and, and, and just realizing that, you know, the institution, the, the church institution is has its importance, but what's really happening is all these kids walking by, and some of them popping in, some of them walking. I said, it's, it's, like, it's like a pilgrimage of kids, of students, walking by, and sometimes they need us, and sometimes they're ready to move on. And our job is to care for them when they come in the door, or when we find them on the sidewalk, or when we pass them by. Um, and sometimes our young students, I've got a couple of them here tonight, so, um, would you know, say, well, you know, those people, they don't come to church anymore. And, 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 yeah, but maybe, you know, they're walking. It's a, it's a pilgrimage. Um, so I think I have a less institutional experience or less institutional understanding of what it means to be a pastor. You still have to pay the bills. You have to keep the lights on, um, all that kind of stuff. You have to manage things. But... Um, the and especially welcoming. Uh, this is I've, I think everywhere I've been since the pilgrimage. You know my constant refrain to my the leaders in the parish and the parishioners themselves is 
you know, our first and primary job is welcome, welcome, welcome. And I, I still pull this on the sem- uh, seminarians now and then when I have a chance to talk to them. And I say, what does a priest do all day? And they say, well, you know, he does this, he hears confessions, he says mass, he goes and visits the sick. I said, no, what does he do all day? I don't know, you know, and then they get jokey. Oh, he drinks scotch and play golf. And say, no, what does he do all day? And they say, why would they get stuck? And I say, well, he says, welcome, 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 all day long, every day. That's your job. Um, so that I got from there because I experience, you experience both. You experience unwelcomeness occasionally, very seldom, but occasionally, and how hard it is when you've had a really bad day and you've walked 20 miles and somebody doesn't treat you kindly. And alternatively, when you've had a really bad day and someone says, come in, um, have a dinner, have a shower, uh, what can we do for you? And you go, it's so nice, it's just so good. Does that help? I asked you if you still walk a lot. No. (laughs) (laughs) Some, but not a lot, not enough, sadly. But, you know, retirement's only a few years out. (laughs) Um, So. Okay, great. So you were next going to talk a little bit more about the stars and why Mm -hmm. they figured in the the titles and so important. But do you still want to do that, or do you think you covered that with the earth? I can do. Do you want me to do the, can I do the passage? Yes. Okay. Well, hi there. This is my dog. You checking us out? Okay. So, um, why the stars? Well, I mean, that's an obvious theme. So, the the original story of of um, the discovery of of Saint James's Santiago's tomb in Compostela involves stars, and you know, stars sort of doing a little dance, and that's how it kind of indicated where the bishop should look for the tomb. And so, I play that up in the first book, and and but actually, when you're out there again, as I said, you you experience the stars in a really spectacular way very often, and it's very touching and moving. Um, and one, one evening in this second book, um, I was out there under the stars, and my little imagination machine that's inside my head took off. Can I read that? And then that's about it, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's a word in this story that I owe to my brother. If you can, um, he invented it. And um, and uh, I told him I was going to make sure it was in the next book that I wrote so that it would show up. And um, so I give credit. If you find the, if you hear the word, um, then um, you can give him a nickel. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. This is for my brother Bill. Anyway, night falls. There are no street lights nearby. From my room, I step outside. My eyes become accustomed to the dark. I look up, mon dieu, les étoiles. The stars that I so love are on full display. The Via Lactea stretches from one horizon to the other, winding and weaving and cloudy with stellar light. It is so brilliantly close that I feel I can reach out and take hold of it, pull myself up onto it, walk it, dance my way along its sparkling cobbles all the way to Compostela. And so, why not? I do clamber up and do a jig atop that starry way, sweeping across the edge of the galaxy to the holy city. Along the way, I spot the Big Dipper just over my shoulder and locate then the North Star, Polaris. 
the pole around which all else spins, the great symbol of the one thing that is firm, dependable, unchanging, ever true. Good evening, Polaris. Good evening to you, Pilgrim. And from your great height, how do you see things on our earth so far below? Your earth and its species, and especially your own race, are all lovely. But what of our wars and famines and addictions and poverties and abuse of one another? Are they so lovely? No, they are not so lovely. You are right, little pilgrim. But from this distance, we stars see them as they are in the midst of so much more. From here, they are part of something much greater, something that is beautiful. And the unbeautiful things cannot overwhelm the greater beauty of which they are a part. Our race seems especially unbeautiful to me sometimes. Well, that is a failure of your vision. You are too close. Come and see what I see. Come to you there? Yes, come to me here. How? Just come. May I fly to you? Fly you may. So I shall fly. Welcome to the Little Dipper, little pilgrim. Take my hand and look to where I point with the other. Yes, fine, I'll happily take your hand, though I didn't previously know stars had hands. We have hands when you need us to have hands, and eyes too, and hearts as well, and voices. Voices? Yes, we sing. We are stellar performers. Sorry. Our harmonies are splendid, our melodies sublime. You must open your ears more profoundly and listen to us more often. Yes, indeed, I must, and my eyes too, I suspect. Yes, do so now. Behold, little pilgrim, your earth from above. It is a marvel of blue and white and green and brown, a perfect round of dirt and cloud and sea and flesh. It cries out peace. It is a gift. It is precious. Even its many ills cannot disfigure its face. And beyond it, a sea of night, but in that sea cast from one end to another. We stars in our trillions, ordered into galaxies that are pinwheels on the handlebars of God's celestial bicycle, we spin and whirl and whir as he rides like a kid down the street of time, laughing all the way, free. Is this not beautiful too? Yes, it is beautiful too. And you see any ugliness, any ungodliness in this? No, none, except that it cannot last forever. Someday it must end. What must end? What is this it that must someday end? Beauty, loveliness, song, dance, godliness? You mistake matter for grace. I'm showing you grace. You are seeing only matter. Look there, the Via Lactea that you were just dancing along. How do you see it? Well, it is beautiful beyond words. It stretches out from one end of the night sky to the other, a highway made of a billion stars. It is gloriously beautiful for now. But what I meant by ending is that one day or another, the stars will burn out, the galaxy will collapse into a black hole. Eventually, the whole universe itself will either expand into nothingness or collapse into nothingness. What do you know of stars? I tell you, and I speak as a star myself, I am Polaris after all. I tell you that you are wrong because you do not see the truth of the earth, the truth of stars, the truth within the universe. What I see is generosity, a hand strewing stars, setting them spinning, copiously spilling them out by the billions, 
planting them with life, loving them. It is the strewing, the gifting, the spilling, the love that is true and beautiful and does not end. As for the stars, so for your earth and your race. Do you not also sing? Are not harmonies part of your best prayers? Do you not also sacrifice yourself for your children? Do you not wander and wonder, little pilgrim? This is what is real and what is true and what endures. It is beauty. It is truth. It is grace. All things come to it. Every wound is healed within it. Every death is a birth in it. Eventually the many become one in it. That is what I see from up here. That is what I know. That is why I see you and your race and your earth as lovely. You and all that you are a part of is lovely, born of love and growing into love. Do you see it? Do you hear us sing now? Yes, I think so. I will try to listen better. I'll try to see better. I'll try to walk better. Be on your way then. Good night, bright Polaris. Good night, little pilgrim. I realized halfway through that's not the passage that has the word in it that my brother invented. Do you you. want to reveal it? Do you want to reveal your word? What is the word? Egoliptical. You know what it means even before you, even though it's not in a dictionary. Perfect word. Egoliptical. <laughs> He's a physical therapist, so he works on elliptical things and, and egoliptical, spinning around yourself. So we have time for just a few questions. And here's the whole secret if you're ever asked to be a moderator and MC to be seen as successful and a speaker is you limit the question. I'm sure your questions are good. But have you ever been to a place that they go, oh, and then you think, oh, I'm So we're not going to do that. <laughs> so we will have a couple questions, maybe three. And please, um, we, if you want to ask a question, just stand up and project your voice. Or if you wish me to come with the microphone so everyone will hear. And then Father Kevin will answer. And we'll have about five to seven minutes for that. And then the after party will commence. Okay. <laughs> or if any of the COD kids want to tell a secret or two. No, no, no. no. <laughs> All right, now I probably scared you away from asking questions. All right, oh, my, it's a nappy kid. What was in Gregory? What was in, what was in Gregory? Yeah. Well, he's over there. No. <laughs> yeah. um, Someone go lift Gregory. So uh, Gregory, before he put anything in it, weighs six pounds or seven pounds, which was a kind of a mistake. But that's what REI sold me. Um, <laughs> Gregory the Great. So what do you put in there? You've, you've, you've got basic clothes. So you need probably three pairs of socks, underwear, T-shirt. Um, you need a couple pairs. You need two shirts. You need two p- because you've got to wash and then dry and wash and dry. You have to wash every day. That means the next day. Where do you wash? In the sink. In uh, yeah, wherever you can find you. you yep. You, and you use. So you have a bar of soap, which you use for your hair. You use it for your body. You use it for your clothes. Um, you get the nice Spanish soap or the French soap that doesn't have perfumes in it. Um, that kind of stuff. Real soap. Soap. Um, 
And then um, you have to have a little bit of food. In France, you think Fran- France is a very beautiful country and the people are wonderful. Um, but their small villages are getting smaller and smaller. And so sometimes the little guide will say, you've got three days before you're going to hit another store. And you go, oh, three days of tuna fish. <laughs> so I kept two or three cans of tuna fish because when you start getting, is it glycemic? When you start getting a yick, you know, nothing like a tuna to get you going again. Um <laughs> And it adds up pretty soon. It adds up. And then you've got 30 pounds on your back. Yeah. One pair of shoes, two One pair of shoes and a pair of sandals. For the, well, One pair of boots, one pair of sandals. That's it. Yeah. Great. Good, a good question, Sister Michelle. <laughs> um, okay. We have time for a couple more. All right. Big loud voice. On a longer pilgrimage, Father. Um, yeah. There must have been times when you found yourself among a, a quite a large group of uh, pilgrims. No. Walking along. To the contrary. Could you kind of give us a description of uh, of the intervals where, and maybe the you know the percentage, whatever the intervals where you were just felt like you were out there by yourself walking, yeah. versus when you were with a small group and there was a guide and. Yeah. So, so in, in Spain, you're always with people. It's, it's especially along what they call the Camino Frances. There's tons of people now. You, it's very hard to find solitude. In France, it's very hard to find another pilgrim because it's so big and it's so long. You do occasionally, but um, the vast, vast majority of the time, I was by myself. And the people you would end up visiting with would be at the end of the day when you had when you stayed in what uh, what we would call a B and B, and they call a chambre de haute, um, and so you'd have the host family, and sometimes they'd have other guests, and then in the evening you'd, you'd visit and chat with people and tell your stories. Um, but as you're walking, it was very, very seldom to find another pilgrim. And when, when you did, it was like, oh, my God, life. You know, it's like a breath of fresh water. Well, most of the time, because most pilgrims are really nice, but occasionally one can be annoying. Um, <laughs> but mostly they were really wonderful people. And um, so, so that's, that's the mind game and kind of the spirit game in the long walk through France, where you're doing this over a period of several months, is keeping keeping your motivation up and your sense of mission and what am I doing out here? And you ask yourself that all the time. Like sometimes in your dark moments, like, what am I doing out here? Um, if you were with a group of people, they would kind of shore each other up. Uh, yeah. Somewhat, right? Yes, that's true. You've got more support systems in the, with, in the, with, when you're with others. If if you're all playing the same game, if 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 they're if they're out there as an athletic event, um, it's a different story. They just drive you crazy. <laughs> you know, they, you sit down at night and they're talking about their 50-kilometer day and just go, leave me alone. <laughs> George, are you standing because you have a question? Oh, you're just standing because you're. Oh yeah, George is going to slide. Yes. I had a chance yeah. last year to walk from Saria to Santiago, yeah. which is, you know, it's the most popular part. Yeah. So it's very well marked and very well supported. And I wondered how far east or how far back those markers and where that started and, and how much trouble you had perhaps finding your way or getting lost. Yeah, well, in Spain, it's, it's very well marked. Um, I'm not sure about some of the other routes in Spain, the 
Via de la Plata and stuff, but the, the basic route is really marked. In France, it's quite well marked as well, and Belgium, less so. But but it's they're getting well marked as they as they work on the infrastructure. It's getting where and, and the guides are very helpful. There's only there was only one place in France where, well, there were two places. One place where the government and the pilgrim c- community fought over who had the rights to mark the trail. So um, that. So there were two sets of markers, which was not easy. Um, there was another place in southern France, uh, this was in the third walk, where there were almost no markers. So you really had to pay attention to your guidebook um, to get you down the road you know, correctly. But most of France uh, and most of Belgium, most of Europe is, is well marked. And besides the actual pilgrim markers, there's also the what they call the GR markers, the Grand Route markers, which are, are a network of trekking trails all over Europe. And they're marked with red and white slashes on, on trees and on posts and things that tell you, go left, go right, go straight ahead, go back, you made a mistake, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. We have time for one more. Who's the brave? Okay. Yeah. Stand up, big loud voice. Uh, okay, well, I just, just thank you so much. But um, were you ever fearful of animals or crazy people? Or no. Or no. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I did. I did come across a family of uh, wild boars. They were a little scary, and I just hung back until they cleared the road because they are the not nice animals. Um, that's probably the only animal I was ever afraid of. Um, one day I walked through an encampment of, uh, we would call them gypsies, um, in France. And uh, I, it, uh, kind of approaching it, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't really know what, you know, what I, anyway, I went, my, the path went right through their encampment. And they just looked at me and I said, bonjour, and they said, bonjour, monsieur, courage, you know, off I went. So, you know, that was just because I didn't know you know, um, what I was, it was an unknown for me. Um, but no, and, it's, and, and in Spain, the, the French Camino, or the Camino Francais, they call it, um, there's more trouble now because it's become so famous, um, but not a lot. So a lot of times women will ask me, is it safe for a woman to walk? And, and I think generally the answer is yes. There's a few precautions that are reasonable to take. Um, but there's more petty crime, people getting their money belts ripped off and stuff like that during the night or things like that. But that's, again, I walked 15 years ago, you know, the Spanish route, so it's changed quite a bit. Kathy, you have more experience, recent experience. But it's it's if it's reasonable precautions, yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I think my primary experience is walking through Spain was what an extraordinary experience it is to live without fear for a whole month of your life. It just yeah. is so. Fr- that's what allows people to be free and and care for one another and build community because they're not afraid of one another, even strangers. And that's an amazing experience. And again, that's I think what hopefully. Churches and other institutions like churches should be doing is this should be a place where you don't have to be afraid 
um, so that you can care for one another. So you have some thank yous. Yeah, and okay. then I'm going to end with uh, one of my favorite passages, and that'll be our kind of ending prayer, and then we're going to party on. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay, so thank yous. Oh, first an apology. We advertised wine, but then when we looked at the fine print of the permit, it said you can't advertise this generally, and we'd already done that. So we said we either pull the general invitation to everybody or we serve wine. So we said everybody's more important than wine. So sorry about the wine, but we had fake champagne anyway. <laughs> um, but I would first of all, I want to thank Becky for doing this for us. Thank you, Becky. You're wonderful. And a um, couple other thank yous. Uh, for, uh, Kevin and your, your crew of musicians, thank you. We're going to hear more from you, I hope. Um, and to everybody who helped me on this, I mean, last week, as you know, is Holy Week, Easter. Uh, so this was like put together, like really, it was not, this was not well planned. Um, so I want to thank Andy McGoran, Nancy Cleveno, um, uh, all the ladies in the back, all the people who brought food, Pat's over there selling books, um, uh, Dean and Mary, thank you so much for all of your help getting this pulled together in a really in a, kind of a last minute kind of way. And thank you most of all to all of you for coming this evening. It's really nice to have you. And thanks to Razzy for keeping me company. <laughs> thank you. So I'm going to end on this with um, one of my favorite passages because it was kind of all about us. It's uh, Kevin, Father Kevin describing our, the neighborhood we grew up in. So that will be kind of our ending reading and a final kind of prayer. And then... You will be signing books sure. and answering other questions. And again, just help that there's a lot of food. I'm getting the signal from Andy. Okay. And help yourself. So let's take a deep breath to end this sacred time that we've had together with our great Father Kevin. And this was uh, page 194 and beyond, even the stars. I am... This astounds me and has always astounded me whenever I have stopped long enough to let its reality overtake me. I remember walking home from St. Charles Elementary School, maybe about fourth or perhaps fifth on an autumn day, by myself, dawdling as I went, for I was a great dawdler when walking home from school and taking the left-hand turn onto Cora Street. Lined for two blocks with maple trees, beautiful in the summer when the arms of those trees reached across the street itself to hold leafy green hands, forming an emerald tunnel above Cora. And below, at my feet, mounds of brown and golden leaves just waiting to be kicked up. And as I kicked those leaves, making them fly, it hit me. I am... I am real, and I am here, and I am aware of myself, and I am alive. Kevin Ambrose Cod, I am. Surprised by me, that is what pretty much, pretty much, um, wait, that is, sorry, and pretty much ever since then, I have loved being, just being moment following moment adventure upon adventure leaf 
landing atop leaf. It is all gift. It is all just one great, grand gift. Grace. And thank you for the grace that you are, Father. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, food, drink, uh, visit, chat, uh, books. <laughs> it's a big crowd, huh? Yeah. Nice crowd.